Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we're on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. This week, we're back with another classic Disney animated movie, Beauty and the Beast. In part one, we're going to follow the story of Belle. Belle really is a true wonder. She starts out in a small town with visions of grandeur, but her visions aren't about making money or having power or influence. Her visions are about curiosity discovery, compassion. Throughout her journey, Belle has to utilize the skills that she's been learning throughout her entire life growing up in this small town that she's been teaching herself through books or that she's learned from her inventor father, Maurice. She develops a magnanimous character when the stakes are small. She doesn't know when the test is going to come or what it's going to be. But of course, this is a story and we're following it. So there is a test and it comes when she least expects it, when she gets dragged out to the Beast's castle to try to save Maurice. Because Belle's been curating this magnanimous character her entire life, she's able to pass the test. She's a true interloper. She does the unexpected. She's willing to trade herself for Maurice to stay in Beast's castle. Belle's dream for a bigger world comes faster than she can expect, and of course, like all of us, it comes in a way she would never expect. But her ability to navigate that big world is totally dependent on her capability to navigate the small world before she ever had bigger stakes, before she had people to lead or influence. Belle dreams of a bigger world, but when the opportunity finally comes for her to get outside the small town, she ends up trading her small world for a smaller one to move into this prison cell in Beast's castle. Through this experience, Belle's character gets crystallized and her magnanimous leadership qualities flow out into the world around her and into the people of the castle, and of course, into to Beast himself, leading to the unexpected story where Belle saves the prince, saves the castle, and all its inhabitants, and they all live happily ever after. Welcome to Wonder Tour. All right. Hey, I'm Brian, and I'm here with Drew once again as we continue our series on map making. So Beauty and the Beast, showing my age a little bit, this movie came out when I was in high school. And high school, Brian was a capital R romantic, and I loved everything about this movie. <laughs> But in particular, in the best Disney fashion, one of the great things about this movie is how much joy it's suffused with. Every scene, every hand-drawn animation, every ridiculous musical number, all of the characters are incredibly joyful in their own ways, even the negative characters. The Beast delights at snarling at people and knocking things over and tearing up his environment. Gaston loves shooting things and bragging and stomping around in his great boots. LeFou apparently just loves getting punched in the nose. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think Every, it's all it, it all comes together in in the song Gaston. This musical has so many good numbers, but to me Gaston is the best. It's like you said, it just pulls together all of the great parts of the movie. It's this hand-drawn animation. It's this exuberance about being punched in the face by LeFou. And all of the townsfolk, they're all just like, "We are happy to be abused by Gaston." It just takes what's the best about these Disney animated movies where you make, well, I think we said in Pinocchio, which gosh, it's been a long time since we've done one of these Disney animated movies uh, in this hand-drawn era. But we said that you kind of make mountains out of molehills. There's like these little things that happen in these myths. And so they make them huge. And that's exactly what Gaston is, right? He's just this larger than life character. Every interaction he has is just ridiculous. Yes, absolutely. 
And so this is, you know, some of the things that we can play with in this and some of the things that I loved about it so much were it's got the classic sort of small world, big world duality where the scene that resonates the most with all of us as wanderers is Belle in the space of about four lines goes from Madame Gaston, you can't, you, can you just see it? Like that's, you know, she doesn't want to be the little wife. Like she goes from that to I want much more than this provincial life. I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. I just want somebody to understand. Six lines of song that perfectly bridges the current state to the desired state, and we've all been there. That is the experience of being an aspiring leader, an emerging leader, somebody who has big ideas and big dreams and is trying to cultivate their character, but doesn't have the challenge to apply it to yet. That's the state. And so that's yeah. you know, certainly She's not like how I would have expressed Yeah. She's like Cooper in Interstellar. We we always draw back the magnanimous leaders to Cooper and Murph in Interstellar. And Belle really is. She has to go out of this small town, just like Cooper has to go out of this small world to be able to pass through a wormhole to the Beast's castle or to the other dimension, or, you know, in order to create a new path for the people around her that saves them from this navel gazing that they're doing right now where they're just so focused on, you know, only what's right in front of them. Yeah, totally. And so that's, of course, not at all how I would have explained why I liked it when I was 16 years old. But that that aspirational, like, there's got to be a bigger world and there's got to be an adventure out there with my name on it. And you know, I feel like I've got more potential than this small village that I'm living in. That's a pretty universal message, but I think that's a good place to start our discussion of the movie. Well, kind of this first episode, let's talk about Belle. Let's talk about that being stuck in the small world and having grander visions. And what do you do to prepare and how do you either recognize or be able to address the challenges when they come up? Let's jump right into the what if here. I know sometimes we leave it for a little bit longer, but... Let's take a little bit of a detour here. We'll get back to Bell. Let's talk about the servants. The servants are one of the, again, one of those bright spots of this movie. They bring so much life to everything that they do. So, Brian, what if the servants follow Beast's orders? What if instead of befriending Bell, taking Bell into the family, feeding her, instead they just follow what the Beast asks them to do, which is just keep her in prison, basically. Just make sure she stays here and just make sure she doesn't die. Yeah, this is a very different movie, right? Like the servants are, you know, the center section of the movie is pretty much around Belle interacting with the denizens at the castle. And they're fabulous characters voiced impeccably well. And yeah, the Beast's initial instruction is like, anyway, you know, she doesn't go anywhere unless I give permission and we don't we're not nice to her because she doesn't deserve it. The servant who is the sort of the guardian personality of we follow the rules and we don't make any mistakes is Cogsworth. And he's like, all right, you know, crust of bread, glass of water. She doesn't leave the room. And the servant who is sort of the emerging leader in the crew, Lumiere, who's the visionary, romantic, like kind of outgoing one, is like, no, 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 we're gonna we're gonna get us some food, we're gonna introduce her to everyone, you know, <laughs> you know. So he's somewhat of a troublemaker, you know. Lumiere's what gets Maurice into trouble at the beginning, but he's also just this incredibly warm and passionate and joyful character. And so he's like, oh, anyway, whatever, whatever. Anyway, I, I know we're not supposed to be nice to her, but that's who we are. We take care of people. We're going to be nice to her. So that experience of being welcomed, even, you know, even out of context, is what sort of draws Belle deeper into the story and allows her to start to unlock the problems that she and the Beast are both locked in. But it starts with a little bit of civil disobedience. It starts with a little bit of a local leader. You know, Lumiere's sort of in a bell situation. He's dreaming of a bigger world, but he doesn't get to attack it himself. But he sees an opportunity to maybe take a step in that direction. Yeah, that tie into Bell is exactly what I'm seeing as well. 
Lumiere is definitely in a small world situation. You know, he's a servant in this world, which, again, isn't this is a fantastical world. And in the end, I'm not either way. His his world was never that large, but he had a much larger world. He's literally been shrunk down to size. He has <laughs> lost his posable thumbs. He has right. he doesn't have all these capabilities that he used to have as a human. The world's lost all the color, right? We see that at the end when all the color comes back to the castle and all the dark things become light things. And his world that he finds himself in, he's kind of doing the same thing that Bell's doing, right? And in a little bit different of a way. Whereas Bell is kind of dreaming of this bigger world, Lumiere is kind of making the best of the small world that he's in. He's maximizing the scope that he finds himself in. He really can't leave the castle, regardless of if he agrees with the Beast's methods. He has to work with Beast. He has to work with all the other people around him. So he kind of is boxed in, but he never acts like he's boxed in. He doesn't let his mindset shift to that he's boxed in. He's always acting like, well, I could, you know, I could break out of here if I wanted to, basically. I'm just here to have fun. I'm here to hang out. I'm here to make sure people feel warm and loved. Yeah, the key element of of Bell's character and of Lumiere is that they're both hopeful. Lumiere is like, this is going to work. I don't care if we've got three days left until the last petal falls off the rose, and I don't care if we're, you know, could potentially be doomed forever. I'm going to act as if there could be a happy ending. And he does that consistently throughout, even after being beat down for 10 years and being transformed into a candlestick, right? <laughs> so, so we can view that right from our leadership world lens two different ways. Like sometimes you're a Lumiere. Sometimes you're in a situation not of your making. And the only potential path out of it is for you to be a positive influence. You can't fix it yourself, but you can represent the path forward and you can offer advice and you can paint the picture of what better would look like and you can be emotionally intelligent and sympathetic and try to you know build the team like that's one thing you can do the other way to think about it is that if you're in a leadership role you might have a lumiere working for you you might have somebody who has great passion and great insight and is the one who's going to help your organization move forward and you just need to listen to them I can think of a great example of that somebody that I only started working with not too long ago He's newer, younger in his career, doesn't necessarily have the big world experience of how everything all integrates together across a large organization. But within that, not necessarily a small world, but within the world he's operating in, he's awesome. I'm mm. always impressed by how he's maximizing his world that he's operating in and how he's acting as if the boundaries there, while he knows he's acknowledging that there's boundaries. In his mind, he's acting as if those boundaries are not containing him necessarily. And that while he so now we're taking this into application and I love it. He's saying that I acknowledge there are boundaries right now, but I'm not saying those walls are too high to climb or to blow down eventually. And while I don't know necessarily what's on the other side of those walls, I'm willing to learn about it and I'm going to operate as if I need to learn about it and that I need right. to get out there. All right. I love that you brought in the learning because I want to bring this back to Belle because this is, after all, her movie. And everything you just said about that mindset is totally applicable to Belle when we meet her. So let's talk about how Belle is preparing for the bigger world that she dreams of. Right. She's got limited options. She's a woman in this small provincial French town. Her father is very important in her life and brilliant. And she believes in him, but he's not, you know, he's he's sort of everybody's amused by him, but he's not Gaston. He's not the, you know, well-respected, perfectly fitting in character. But what does she do? So what, what does Belle do in her small world to kind of prepare for leadership? How do we see her character in the first part of the movie here? So Belle, when we first meet her, she has this aura about her that all the people in the town love her, even though she's not necessarily 
she's not Gaston, right? She's not the best at everything. She's not the moneymaker. You know, she's not the leader of the town necessarily. But you can just tell that all the people feel for Belle because she feels for them. They understand her only to a limited extent, but they're okay with that. And I think we can empathize with that as wanderers and as magnanimous leaders as well, because it definitely feels like that some days. But her strategy to be able to handle that bigger world, to be able to handle the test that we always talk about, because we always say, you know, in this world that we find ourselves in, we're going to get tasked with a test. The most easiest example is Indiana Jones. <laughs> Indiana Jones is always having these tests that are placed in front of him, life or death, you know, for him and everybody else, basically. Is he going to pass the test or is he not? It's a little bit harder because Belle doesn't have this linear journey to the Holy Grail like Indy has. It's not that she doesn't have ambitions. It's just that her ambitions are to learn and to be curious and to develop as a person and to care about the people around her, including maximally about Maurice. But her strategy, it seems, is to focus on that curiosity, right? She's always at the bookstore or the library. She's always trying to learn about something, even when she doesn't know how it's going to be useful. She's just gathering knowledge and waiting for an opportunity to turn that knowledge into wisdom. She's trying to figure out how to model that kind of life. She loves the stories and she wants to be the hero and have the adventure. But she's, yeah, again, kind of like we talked about in the, in the Fast Five movie, which is nothing like this movie. But she spends time gathering information, right? She's read every book in the bookstore. and She keeps going back in and asking about it. But she's an interesting combination of a little bit oblivious, like she's just sort of walking through the town and all these things are happening about her and things are working out for her. But you do see her. She's very sensitive to the people around her. She asks about people's family. She has a good relationship. The bookstore guy likes her so much he gives her a book. She's the one character that actually listens to the horse Philippe right? <laughs> when he's got some concerns. She's like paying attention to him. And she's clearly doting on her father. So she's sort of maximizing her available, healthy relationships. And she's maximizing the information gain that she can have. Like she's trying to learn as much as she can. She's just giving herself permission to dream. Like I don't have to be stuck in this. I'm going to think about what a better life looks like. And I'm going to go after it. And so one of the payoffs for that, one of the inciting incidents for the plot, but one of the payoffs for that is that when Gaston confronts her because he's attracted to one aspect of her, she's pretty. So, OK, great. She's the designated wife. And she recognizes very quickly that that's not aligned because she's got dreams, even though they're not clear, even though she doesn't have very specific goals, she can very easily recognize when something comes up that isn't well aligned. It's like, yeah, no, like she's looking deeper than the surface, right? She's looking deeper than like, oh, I want a handsome Prince Charming. Well, Gaston with fits a bill. Like if that's all that she was after, if she was it's just like waiting the for the prince to show up, she would have been like, yeah, sign me up, Mrs. Gaston, let's go. But she's totally not. She's like, I'm more about me than about being subservient to you. And she can recognize his character very easily as not being at all what she's interested in. It's like the lateral move at work where you're just waiting for the world to open up and you know that it can happen and will happen at some point. But you're just so eager for it to get larger. You know, maybe you're in an entry level job coming out of school and you feel like you've really mastered the tasks that have been put in front of you, but you can kind of see the edges of your container. You're like, OK, what am I going to learn about the other thing? This happens to us all over and over in our career and in our lives. We can start to see as we become more mature in our current surroundings, the edges of the container. And if you're a wanderer, you're probably wanting to expand that container. But we don't always want to take the first offer that somebody puts in front of us, right? Just because we're looking for something doesn't mean we're looking for anything. 
And so that job opportunity that's a lateral move or even that's a move up sometimes is not the right move to make. And that's where wisdom comes in, right? While we're in that container work, we're reading books, we're discovering things about the world outside, we're picking up as much knowledge as possible. That way, when we have the chance to apply that knowledge as wisdom, we're able to make the right moves. Because again, you just don't want to take that lateral move or even that upward move that doesn't increase the size of the world. And instead, you're just moving into another container, basically. This is a classic decision framework. What she's presented with is very safe, right? This is the conventional wisdom decision is that if you can get married to the most handsome and successful guy in town, then great, you're set for life. And you're very well conforming with the expectations of society. We've got the three blondes that are just sort of hovering around the edges of the story. It's just like, why doesn't she understand how wonderful he is? Like, they're the society's expectations voice. And so she's modeling here, having her own values and having her own goals at the same time that she is very compassionate for the townsfolk. She has a good relationship with them. She wants, you know, she wants everybody to be happy. She's totally comfortable being part of the town for the moment. But she recognizes that her goals are something else, that safety is not what she's going for. And so when she's offered this conventional low-risk path, she turns it down, even though she doesn't at that moment have a better idea. No, and she actually says the opposite. As I was talking about in the intro, she takes the smaller world path at one point. When she's confronted with those two roads in the castle, she's like, no, take me instead of Maurice. I will be in prison instead of him. And that is a crucial magnanimous moment where she understands that, well, I, I won't necessarily say she understands how, but she does understand the concept that we always talk about, these upside down concepts where maybe instead of seeking control or instead of opening up the world right now, taking the direct path, I'm going to take the indirect path and I'm going to do the thing that nobody expects me to do that provides me no ROI. I'm going to save Maurice and... She prioritizes character development for Maurice and for her. Basically, she says, I prioritize character development over physical development, over my surroundings. And in the end, this is critical. And we brought this up before on the tour is love is recursive. There and you it's go. It's so was... hard to capture it. No, that's where we needed to go, right? Like she's not being terribly strategic or even tactical about this. She rejects Gaston because there's no love there. She offers to trade herself for Maurice purely out of love with no better plan about how it's going to go. Making decisions on that basis frames up what the possible paths are that are available to you. But other people observing you make those choices may eventually be influenced by how you're doing it. And certainly, you know, you're always operating on a, on a more solid basis. So we have these two big decisions. You know, Belle's confronted with a couple of dramatic situations. She has an opportunity to uh, lean into the society and get married to Gaston. She says no. And then her father goes missing and she goes out after him. She displays courage and resourcefulness in that process. She gets to the castle. She doesn't hesitate. She goes right into the castle. She goes right up. She finds him. And then when the opportunity presents itself to do something that is much more intimidating, but her character requires it, she doesn't hesitate. Step into the light. Let me see what I'm signing up for. So she, she does do that. She demands that the beast kind of give her a little bit more information about what the challenge is that she's signing up for. But then she does it without hesitating. Like, all right. And so that sets up her opportunity, exactly as you said. She was dreaming of a bigger world. She just signed up for a much, much smaller one. But that sets her on the potential to have dramatically new experiences and to learn from those experiences and to influence the people around her. Brian, so what you're saying is that Belle has a growth mindset. 
And a growth mindset, the thing about it is it transcends big world, small world. The growth mindset is built to traverse small world to big world terrain. That's the best part about it. Well, and there's a lot of good parts about a growth mindset, but that's what's one of the best parts about it. And she combines that growth mindset with consistently making the decisions on the basis of character. She expresses love whenever she can. So we see that in her next big decision, once we get through the delightful training montage of being immersed in the castle and getting to know the, the servants and discovering that this is a magical castle, the dinner scene is one of the signature Disney set piece musical pieces is just fabulous. So she gets through all that and she's kind of buying into this environment, right? She's developing a relationship with these characters. She doesn't understand the beast's fate. You know, she gets into trouble with going and finding the rose. She gets into trouble sort of exploring the, the West Wing. But she does kind of immerse herself in this environment. She's immersing herself in this environment, in the castle and in its people. And one of the cool moments we get is the payoff for that she gets an unexpected benefit from engaging with her environment. So you want to walk us through that one, Drew? Yeah, the one bright spot in the entire castle, apparently, is this huge library that Beast and company have going on. I don't know how that was the one part that's saved from all the darkness. It doesn't have the gothic vibe to it, but that one has colors still in it. Uh, but, you know, that's all part of the narrative. Belle, as she loves the Beast, we're not saying like a romantic love necessarily here. We're saying more of a personal love or a a magnanimous leader love where we want to love each person well around us the beast opens up the world a little bit again you know maybe that's a room that he had closed off and that's kind of significant to him is that he opens up that room with light and color in it again in his life that's a big step in his growth but it's also a little reward to bell who you know as we see in the beginning one of her top priorities is reading and so it's just a perfect example of how love is recursive and it happens in ways that you least expect it bell didn't do any of this so that she could find the world's biggest library literally this <laughs> library is like the best example of a open world that she could find because that's how she sees the world she's only bound by what she can read and understand so this opens up her world massively as soon as she finds this library. And at the same time, Beast is opening up this door that he had closed in his life for so long, both physically and mentally. Oh, I love it. Yes, I love this moment as the mountaintop moment for several reasons, right? Because it's, again, as you said, is the Beast opening up, which is a great example of, you know, his, his internal state being reflected in the external progress of the world. It's an example of Bell getting an unexpected payoff for behaving in a compassionate and magnanimous way. And the reason that it happens is because the Beast actually listened to advice. It wasn't actually his idea. This was Lumiere's idea. Lumiere remembered early on that Bell was like, hey, there's a library. And he brought it back. When he started to open up emotionally, I want to do something for her. He listened to his advisor and Lumiere's sort of the Jiminy Cricket of the, of the movie, right? Like he's the one that can see the future. He's like, I've got an idea for you. And that really deepens the relationship. It really pays off better than any of them could expect it. Like it's an unexpectedly positive development. And that's what really unlocks this almost like the training montage piece of going through the rest of the her engagement with the castle. But the other thing that I love about it is that, like we talked about in Fast and Furious, it's a library, it's information, it's stories, it's thinking about the bigger world. Like the growth that she has is literally access to more dreams and more information. 
uh, just like we talked about in Fast and Furious, where they spent the whole first half of the movie just gaining information. Her payoff in the first part of this movie is gaining information. Weirdly, you reap what you sow. And that's the kind of crazy thing about love. It's this force that no matter where you're at, what you believe, I think humans understand that love is a invisible force that runs underneath the fabric of this physical reality in many ways more powerful and more true than what you're actually laying your eyes on. And so as a as Nolan tries to tell us again in Interstellar, we always go back to that. That's a classic, crazy, complicated, yet simple way to try to explain, Okay, what is love? In a way, that whole crazy narrative boils down to Nolan trying to draw a picture of his understanding of love in the universe. (laughs) And, And right here we get an even simpler understanding of what love is. Right. Love is to do something for someone else when they can't do anything for you back. She does it for Maurice. She does it for Beast. And as a result, her character continues to grow and she continues to be able to pass the bigger and bigger tests as they come. When she passes those tests, what happens? It unlocks blessings for the people around her. It unlocks blessings for the townsfolk. They get out from under Gaston. It unlocks blessings for the denizens of the castle. They get to become human again. And then, of course, it unlocks blessings for the beast because he gets to take back his life, but not just take back his life, to get a better life in its place where he has everything he had before, but now he's capable of wielding it. And he has Vel, who can actually lead him well and can help manage all of this stuff that he couldn't manage before. At the very end, Bell also gets a blessing unlocked, and that's that her world opens up and she found something she never expected that she wanted, but it's what she needed the whole time. Nice. And of course, we have to point out that in the process, we have yet another echo between movies where Bell has exactly the moment that Dom has in the Fast and Furious episode we just did. They've been ambushed by faceless enemies and successfully beaten them off. And her antagonist is lying on the ground and about to be murdered. And she has the opportunity to walk away or to lean in. And she leans in and flips his map on her own sort of on their head. And that's what opens up a lot of this stuff. That is the crucial point of the movie is right there. That's the test that she passes that unlocks everything else in the movie. And it's a test that while we all think that we would pass it, you know, it's arguable. Are we is our character there? That's why we're on this wonder tour is because we know that none of us is a magnanimous leader. We're all magnanimous leaders in training. So we need to continue to develop character for the good of others so that when those tests do come up, big or small, we're ready to face them. When the world gets a little bit larger, when the stakes get a little bit higher, what we need is a magnanimous character in order to pass that test and unlock the blessing for the people around us. Yep. The first time the challenge comes up to her, it's a daunting challenge, but the stakes are clear. She already loves and respects Maurice. She can't bring herself to do anything else, but she she makes a choice out of love. The second time the challenge comes up, it's the same basis for the decision, but it would be very easy to walk away, right? This is somebody that isn't necessarily, like literally she's, you know, a minute and a half earlier in the movie has just fled the castle because he's so horrible. Right? So she can see his character. She can see, you know, she recognizes that he repented and came out to help her. And so that's, you know, again, she makes the decision, you know, her character is intact, as you guys talked about in some previous episodes. And that's what unlocks not just her world, but the rest of the world, as you said so well. That's that's awesome. Oh, 
This was great. Wow. Let's recap this real quick. So we talked about what to do when your world is small, because it doesn't matter where we're at in our journey in life. We all have points where we realize that we can see the edges of the container and we have dreams as wanderers to continue to expand that container, to expand our influence and our love for the people around us for their good. And we're not necessarily talking about how to expand our world in this episode. We're just talking about how do you prepare for when your world does eventually expand, for when that job opportunity does provide itself, for when that that life opportunity shows up unexpectedly. You know, how do we become the type of people that can take advantage? And we first talked about Lumiere and how Lumiere has this tiny world that he's finding himself in, and yet he continues to operate out of joy in that world. And he doesn't let the small physical nature of his world and the castle define his mindset and worldview. He still holds a bigger mindset and a bigger worldview, which allows him to eventually help the team to escape the physical container that they found themselves trapped in. And then, of course, Bell. I think the key with Bell is that love is recursive and magnanimous character is needed to pass the test. As leaders, if we want to help people, we need to be preparing our character in every moment and all the small decisions so that when that big test does happen, right, like you said, Belle is able to pass the first test because she loves and has all these history and experiences with Maurice, maybe. But when the second test comes, she's really had to have built herself up to be able to save somebody who doesn't really deserve to be saved in this moment. And through that, she unlocks the whole world for everybody else, right? She brings color back into the world. The water is flowing in the desert again. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And in between, she has to reject the easy, appealing, materially beneficial offer that she gets. She could just sign up to go be Madame Gaston and, you know, everybody would approve of that. Nobody would uh, criticize her for making that decision. It would be the conventional wisdom thing to do. But taking that easy opportunity, taking that opportunity that is clearly a dead end, closes those other doors. Love it, Brian. This was a, another fantastic episode with you. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to part two, where we're going to talk about Gaston and the Beast and maybe do some compare and contrast there while we continue with our central metaphor for Beauty and the Beast. Big world, small world. We'll talk about a little bit more, maybe the secrets that we learn from Beauty and the Beast on, okay, now how do you actually expand your world when you're in a small world, not just how do you prepare for when the world is going to expand eventually? Yeah, so if Belle is the aspiring emerging leader who's waiting for her opportunity and dreaming of bigger things, the Beast and Gaston are established leaders with significant challenges, and we'll talk about how they navigate those differently and how they empower those around them and how that leads to their divergent outcomes. So we'll look forward to talking to you all next time. And until then, just remember, character is destiny. Destiny.